sometimes we talk about how things can change moment to moment, and so you can't always expect something to happen. And so to begin with, I'm going to talk about something that may or may not be real important to you. Um, I know there's a big game happening next week, but there was a game involving the Kansas City Chiefs a couple years ago where moment to moment, like things drastically changed. And so it was a playoff game, and Kansas City was playing against Buffalo, and it was at the two-minute warning. So there were two minutes left in this game, and Kansas City had a five-point lead, and Buffalo had a fourth down. They needed 13 yards to be able to even have a chance. Otherwise, Kansas City was going to pretty much run out the clock, and Buffalo scored a touchdown on that play. So with a minute 54, they took the lead, and I looked over at my kids trying to stay calm and saying, we didn't deserve to win this game. <laughs> like, if we're going to just allow them to score there, we're not going, or we don't deserve to win this game. However, there's still plenty of time. Buffalo did get the two-point conversion, so they're up three, and then Kansas City runs a play and scores a 64-yard uh, touchdown to then go up by four points with a minute and two left in the game. So, man, the emotion is changing in our household, and we're excited about this, and they can't just kick a field goal to tie the game, so they have to score a touchdown. Certainly in a minute and two, we can keep them out of the end zone. Nope. Okay. <laughs> so Buffalo then drives down the field and they score a touchdown with 13 seconds left. And again, I look at my kids and say, we didn't deserve to win the game. <laughs> like trying not to just get super angry at this going, it's just a game. It's just a game. It's just a game. However, Kansas City gets the ball back, and with two timeouts, they had run two plays that get enough yards down the field that they are able to kick a field goal as time expires. And so within two minutes, 25 points were scored. Like just the emotions from in a moment, yes to no to yes. And so just like the rest of the game had gone, the first team that got the ball was able to go down, score a touchdown, and win the game, and so Kansas City won it. But like just the emotional just changes from instance to instant were crazy, all right? And so people talk about that game as the 13-second game. Now, maybe there's other instances in your life where you see something from one moment to the next. Like, for instance, many of you have kids, and at some point in your life, you have been super proud of something that they're doing, okay? Doesn't change how you love them, but like it's something they're doing. You're like, I am so proud. Like, yes, that is my kid. And in the very next moment, they do something that you're just like... Okay, you're like, where did that come from? Like the thing you said, the thing you did, like what in the world? And so in that moment, like you're emotional. This has gone from yes to no, just like that. Now, if you're a good parent, you use that opportunity to go, how can I use this as building blocks? How can I use this to teach my child how to become the man or woman that God has trained them up to be, like has made them to be? And I tell you all of that because the story that we're looking at today, the instances that happen, I can almost see Jesus being like, yes, in one moment, because something amazing has happened, and in the very next one going, where did that come from? And so that's what we're going to be looking at. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to Matthew chapter 16, all right? Matthew chapter 16 is the text that we're going to be reading today. And so we're in this with series, these encounters with Jesus. And at this point, Jesus has been in ministry for a little over two years. All right. So he's been a little over two years and the crowds are starting to get really, really big. Okay. Some that are wanting to follow him for excitement, going, look at the miracles that he is doing. Listen to his teaching. He is going to be the one that's help, going to help us overthrow like Rome, that they are no longer going to be over us. And just the excitement that is building there. However... There's also a large crowd, very much led by religious leaders that do not like Jesus. 
and the things that he is teaching, like, like this is not the way that we have followed and it's kind of taking away our authority. And so they are getting more and more angry and trying to kind of riled up and trying to get people to follow them too, that we have to do something about Jesus. So these crowds, both instances are starting to become really big. And so at this point, Jesus says, it's time to step away a little bit. And he's going to invest in his 12 disciples, spend some time really investing in them. And so that's where we're at in our Matthew 16 passage. So we're going to read verses 13 through 20 and see what's going on. It tells us when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. <clears throat> okay, so at the beginning it says he's going to Caesarea Philippi. If you were to pull out your map, maybe at the back of a Bible, you'll notice that this is the northernmost point that he's ever going to go to in his ministry. All right, so he's up there. Also, what's going on in this region, obviously they're not followers of Jesus, but there are a lot of people who are worshiping this Greek deity called Pan, who is over nature. There's also up in this area, a temple that has been created that Herod built and had um, dedicated to worshiping um, Caesar. And so there are a lot of people there worshiping these other gods. And then Jesus, in this instance, when he is with his people, he asks the disciples this question. So who do people say that I am? Okay, now Luke actually even tells us that while they were praying, he asks them this question. Now, he doesn't ask this question because he's trying to figure it out himself. Like oftentimes in scripture, you even read Jesus knows their thoughts or he can see what's going on. So it's not like, hmm, I'm clueless. What is going on? You know, he's not going to change. Oh, they think this about me. This is the way I need to do that. He is asking this question for the benefit of the disciples. So they answer. They say, well, some people think you're John the Baptist. Back to Matthew chapter 14, you would read about Herod thinking that maybe this is John the Baptist. Said some people think that you are Elijah. You see in Malachi chapter four, verses five and six, there's actually a reference that says Elijah will come before the Savior comes, before the Messiah comes. Said some people think you're Jeremiah. And there's a couple quotes in the Apocrypha that again, some people kind of link this, that maybe that's why they think Jesus is Jeremiah. Or they say one of the other prophets Okay. Now, again, they talked about these Old Testament prophets had ceased. They hadn't heard, you know, the voice of God for 400 years. Are these people thinking that there's some sort of reincarnation? Like, what does he mean? You're John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. I'll tell you that people did not believe in reincarnation. However, there was a thought process that the spirit of someone who had passed away could come down and empower someone else to carry out their work. And so that's what some of the people even here are thinking that, okay, I think the spirit of John the Baptist or Elijah or whatever is coming within him. And so he's different. Now, why would they think that? Again, because of the way he preaches, he speaks raw truth. He confronts religious and political powers. He does all of these miracles. And so all these people are trying to figure out who he is. But then Jesus asks even a more important question. 
Not so much who does everyone else say that I am, but who do you say that I am? And so in this moment, Peter speaks up. Ah, Peter, there are times that he speaks up quickly and his foot goes directly in his mouth. And then there are other moments that the words that he says are absolutely brilliant. And this is one of those times. And he says, well, you are the Messiah. You are the anointed one from God. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, you are blessed. You're blessed because God has given you this revelation. Like you have had your heart opened up to the truth that I've been speaking, that I've been showing, and you are responding correctly. And so you are blessed because of that. And so I am now going to call you Peter. You see, up to this time, he'd been called Simon. Sometimes even in scripture, you'll see Simon called Peter. This is now the moment that Jesus says, I'm going to call you Peter, which means rock. Okay, so I'm changing your name to rock. And then he says, on this rock... I will build my church. And so there's a little bit of play on words there, but sometimes people are like, okay, so what exactly rock is he talking about? Is he talking about Peter? Upon Peter, I am going to build my church. Is he talking about the confession itself? This idea of that you are the Messiah. You know what? Both have pretty smart people thinking that way. Like some people would tell you, I think it's Peter, and Peter has some authority that is given to him, so much so that maybe he's even the first pope. Like some people believe in this apostolic succession, and so Peter's the first pope because of the word said here. Other people that would tell you, nope, it is the confession that is what the church is going to be built upon. My opinion is I think it's a little bit of both. I think it is Peter because of the confession that he's made that God says, I am going to build this church upon you because of this statement you have made, because of what you believe here. And so here's this idea that the the disciples, they're going to be repeating this confession quickly. And so again, the church is going to be built upon all of them as they continue to spread the word as, as you read through Acts, just in all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It's going to continue. And in this spot, it says church. This is the first time that we have recorded the word church in the New Testament, that I will build my church. That means this group of believers, this group of people who are believing in me, I will build my church upon you, upon this statement. And he says, so much so that the gates of Hades will not be able to stand. And we hear this idea of Hades in the Old Testament and Jewish tradition. It referred to the realm and the power of death. And so he is telling you that death cannot silence the church. And there may be confrontations and there may be moments that the church is beat back just a little bit, but you need to understand that in the end, the church is going to win. And so Jesus also says, I give you the keys. What that means is this idea of authority. I give you the authority here to continue on this ministry. And he talks about binding and loosing. And those aren't words that we just use a whole lot within our conversation. In fact, there's a lot of different interpretations. What exactly does this mean here? Because rabbis or teachers would often have um, certain uh, legislative authority in interpreting scripture. And so is that what they're meaning? Or exorcism or like forgiveness of sins? Here's what I would tell you I think he's talking about. I think he's talking about you guys have the authority now to preach the word of God. And as you are preaching it, it will bind people or it will loose people depending on how they receive it. Are they going to accept the freedom or will they continue to be tied up in slavery? Like that's up to them. And so that's what I would tell you in this aspect. But here's the bigger picture because there's a whole bunch of interpretations. Is it Peter? Is it the confession? You know, what exactly is this binding loosing? Can I tell you, if we just take a step back and look at the bigger, bigger message so we don't just get caught up in the little things. 
from this passage, here's what I would tell you, that Jesus is confirming that he's the Christ, that he is the Messiah, and he wants people to say that. He wants people to follow after him, and those who believe, those who confess, they will have power over death and Hades. They don't have to fear. And after all of this, Jesus again tells them, hey, because of all the tension, don't tell anyone this. Like, shh. There'll be a time where we start telling everyone this again. But but again, because of the tension, I want you to hang on to this truth for now. But Jesus isn't done. So let's keep reading verse 21. We have this. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and then on the third day, be raised to life. Now, if you were to read Mark's account of this, he even adds this little sentence that says, Jesus spoke plainly about this. Okay? Here's why all this is important. This is the first time that Jesus clearly predicts his death. Okay? Like he is saying, this is what's going to happen. Like up to this point, he's kind of referenced it, that the Son of Man will be lifted up or that there will be the temple that will be destroyed and rebuilt in three days. He talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He talks about you don't fast when the bridegroom is still with you. He talks about the sign of Jonah that will come, like all those things. But here he is not speaking in a proverb. He is not speaking in a parable. He tells you the place. This is going to happen in Jerusalem. He tells you the persecution. Rejection is going to happen. And then execution. But then resurrection will also happen as well. He even tells you the people. There's three different groups there listed. That is all part of the Sanhedrin, people in there. And so he says, this, it is, this is what's going to happen. And so based on the confession that Peter gives to Jesus, and I know that the other disciples feel the same way, they have come to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. But now, now it's time for them to understand what exactly the Messiah is going to do. Because he's not come to bring this earthly kingdom with a human army, but it is a spiritual kingdom with a heavenly army. And he hasn't come to bring liberation from Rome through a conquering king, but liberation from sin through a risen Lord. And even though the disciples either forgot it or kind of doubted that, or just in the moment when Jesus was dead after being crucified on a cross, like kind of in shock, and these words didn't come back to them until much later, like Jesus was very clear, this is what's going to happen, that I will die, but I will rise again. Now, Peter is not going to stay quiet. Let's keep reading. In verse 22, it says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And so here we have Peter, like he's stepping up saying, no, no, God forbid, like this will never happen to you. And Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. Okay, now if we're like in name changes, we've gone from Simon to Peter to Satan, okay? Like, it's probably like, okay, I need a new name, okay? All this, but like in all uh, seriousness, that word Satan means adversary. And so he could be literally referring to the devil, but he's like, I don't want you to block me from that which God has me here on this earth. Which then reminds me of Jesus being in the, in the desert when he, Satan comes and tempts him says, look at these other ways that you don't have to go to the cross. All you have to do is bow down or do this and, and you will be king. 
And so here's Peter in a little bit of the same way. Again, not understanding everything, but never, Lord, you do not need to go to the cross. That will never happen. And in this moment then, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You know what one of the first rules of ancient discipleship was never criticize your teacher, especially in public. Peter failed on that one. Okay, like right in front of people. This is what's going on. Never. And so here's Peter. This rock, this foundation of the church has quickly become a stumbling block because he has in mind the things of man. Again, it makes sense in human mindset. No, no, you'll never be this way. But instead, God has a bigger plan. And so again, he says, get behind me so you're not blocking me. You're the student. Follow me as the teacher. But I can almost see just within these words, Jesus, having just been so excited, you got it. You're understanding that I am the Messiah to, that is not the way it goes. But even there, he doesn't stop. He uses this as a moment to even teach, to give some building blocks, to understand this is what I came to do. And so let's read verses 24 through 28. It says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Like what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. And truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom." Jesus says, if you really want to follow me, get ready. You know, Rick mentioned last week that sometimes when we talk about salvation, we have this idea of then everything is going to be perfect in life. And that is not what Jesus ever taught. He says, you know what? You need to deny yourself. Submit all the things that you once thought was important to me. He says, take up your cross. Those are execution terms. In fact, what people would do is they would lift up that, that beam and they would have this humiliating walk in front of everyone to wherever they were being out crucified. And so everyone knew what was happening. He says, I want you to pick up your cross. In fact, Luke even adds the word daily. And again, he's not telling everyone that they're going to necessarily physically die for this. Some will. But he does say you must die to yourself and you must live for me. It's not enough just to sit on a couch and say, I'm a Christian. That's not what I've come for. I want you to follow after me. And so I want you to go where I lead, everywhere, even if that doesn't make sense to you. <clears throat> but he says, anyone who follows me in this way, you will find real life. Like you'll understand what it's all about. And I get that it seems backwards, but Jesus is speaking truth to a world that was looking for it every which way, which again, still today. He said, you want to find life, you give it up and you follow after me. And then he talks about how there will be a reward to those who follow after him. And then Mark and Luke actually include something that Matthew didn't. And they talk about how anyone who is ashamed of me someday when my father comes, he says, he will be ashamed of you. You will not get to just enter into his presence and be with him for eternity. And so Jesus says, do you want to follow then you need to be all in. Completely follow me. And then he says this last verse about that idea of not tasting death. Some of you will not taste death until the Son of Man comes in his kingdom. 
going to tell you there's three kind of big theories as to what does that mean. Some people think it, it refers to what's called the transfiguration, which we're going to look at next week. But there is this moment that some of the disciples are going to see Jesus in a way that they never have before. And so maybe that's part of the glory of his kingdom. There's some people that will tell you that this talks about like when the temple is torn down in 70 AD. And so again, seeing what Jesus is going to do, that that is not the primary focus of God anymore. Some people will tell you what this means is when Jesus is going to resurrect from the dead and the Holy Spirit is going to come on so many people. And so maybe there's a possibility of that. If you're asking me which one it is, I'm going to tell you, I don't know. I'm going to tell you when you get to heaven, ask Jesus. And I don't mean to be light of that. Okay, like I don't want you to just think that I'm being flippant, but I can tell you that whatever he meant in that aspect, my faith is not built on the outcome of what that meant. However, I can tell you that Jesus doesn't say things that aren't true so that I know whatever he meant came true. And so here is all of this, this Jesus talking with Peter and his disciples and their response to him. But at the end of the text, I still want to turn it towards us because we've been talking about these encounters. And so what would this be like as we encounter Jesus, as we walk with him? And today, I think there's three questions that he might stand here and want to ask you that are very similar from this text. And the first question that he would want to ask you is, who do you say that I am? Not everybody else, but who do you say that I am? Because this really is the only question that matters. And will you understand that he's not a forerunner, but he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. He's not just one of the prophets, but he is the one that the prophets spoke about. He is the son of God. And you and I as Christians, that is part of our confession that we say, I believe that you are the Christ. You are the son of God. You know what? There's a lot of defining moments that we have in life. And so sometimes our confession that we make at certain spots becomes a commission. And what I mean by that is, you know, 21 and a half years ago when I stood up on a stage and I looked across from Amy and I said, I do, or I said all the words that was our vows. But anyway, that kind of thing. When I said that, it's not just a, I love you. It now has a commission that I am going to live my life in matrimony with you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to care for you. We're doing this together. It's more than just a confession. It's now a commission. And in this moment, when we say, or when Peter says this idea that you are the Messiah, it then completely changes your life. And so Peter said this confession, and you and I say the exact same thing. And so because of what Jesus had done, and then Peter said it, he laid the foundation, but you and I, we build on top of it. Like he unlocked the door, but we lead people through it. He proclaimed God's forgiveness of sins on earth. But you and I, we reiterate it time and time again. And just as Jesus gave Peter a new name when he made a confession, you and I, we receive a new identity when we make that confession as well. No longer are we defined by any past mistakes or failures or shortcomings, but instead we are defined by our relationship with Christ, that we are children of God that we are co-heirs with Christ, that we are a citizen of heaven. But all of that starts with how we answer the question, who do you say that I am? 
And so some of you in this room and online right now, this is the spot that you've kind of been checking things out. Maybe you've come multiple times. Like maybe there's even ideas that you like or you're, you're excited about Jesus, but man, what does this mean? Like at some point it's like, I am ready to confess this, that I believe that you are the son. I am ready to give you my life. And I would tell you if you're in that boat and today is that challenge, like and you're listening to the Holy Spirit, do not push him away. It is the greatest confession that you can ever give. But I also think there's a couple other questions that Jesus might ask if he were standing here. The second question is this. Will you follow me? Will you follow me? And I mean completely submit to me. Will you deny your ways? Will you daily die to yourself? And then will you follow? Like, I'm not talking about that cheap grace that is like, oh, I'm saved. And now I can just keep doing everything that I was doing before. No, I am now following you wherever you lead. You see this idea of suffering. It's not just for the Messiah, but it's also for those who identify with him. And you may hear that and you're like, well, that sounds terrible. (laughs) Like, I don't want to sign up for that. You know, I'm reminded of a video that I watched earlier this year. If you don't know, I'm a Mizzou fan, and I know some of you have lost respect for me now, but that's okay. Jesus loves all of us. But anyway, I was watching after one of their football games, and a coach had spoken to the team, and it talked about if we win or lose this really important game. And he said, there are so many people that talk about what if you hit rock bottom? And he spoke to them, and he said, you've already been there. Like looking at some of our past years, like you have already been there and we are working our way up. And I thought about that kind of with our life. That sometimes, like before we understand who Jesus is, we try to fix things on our own. You know, we try hard even and we're trying to figure things out, but we are slave to things that have a grasp on us. Sometimes so much that we don't even feel like we can move. And Jesus comes to offer us freedom. He's not the one that brings the suffering. The suffering is from a world that looks at us and goes, I don't know who you are and you don't do things the right way. But Jesus says, I want to offer you freedom that is greater than any suffering that will come. And so when we make that decision, we decide I'm ready to follow. We begin to selflessly serve. And I'll tell you, everything doesn't just happen at once. Like I wish that it did, but it's a journey of transformation and growth and maturation in the Christian faith. Like even think about this, Jesus spent three years teaching and training and preparing his disciples for the work of their ministry. They didn't become mature overnight. In fact, it was a process. Look at Peter right here. He's two years into it. And he's like, nope, this is never going to happen. Like he doesn't completely get it, but they had to learn to trust Jesus and to understand his teachings, to put those teachings into practice. And so in the same way, you and I, we have to commit ourselves this process of learning and growing in the faith, spending time in his word, learning from other mature believers, and then putting into practice the things that we learn. This idea of following, this idea of discipleship, it's not something that we do to earn God's favor, but it's a response to God's call on our life. And it's a commitment that I'm going to follow after him, to learn from him, to become more like him. And I'll tell you, As we align ourselves to his will, you'll find out that a lot of the things that maybe you now begin liking match up with his, and you'll experience a peace and a joy that surpasses all understanding. So the question is, will you follow? And I would tell you that some of you are probably in this boat, and Jesus says, I know you've chosen me, but now I want your life to start looking like mine. 
I want you to follow me every single day and so people can tell that you're different. And here's the third question I think you would ask. Will you be the church? Will you be the church? Will you live as part of the believers? You see, as you're growing, it's not just taking everything in. It is also time to give back. And the church, this church, it has power to change lives as it lives out truth, as it teaches truth. And so as the church, support and encourage one another, bear each other's burdens, and work together to advance the kingdom of God. You do not have to do it by yourself. And as you do that, may you not be ashamed of him. Don't be ashamed because nothing can stand against the power of Christ. And so maybe for some of you, the encouragement is, I really need to plug in with some people around me. Even if I don't understand or learn uh, everyone's name here and work alongside, I want to be part of this body of believers that we serve and encourage one another. And as we do that, it's not by my own strength, but it is by the power of God. Charles Spurgeon once said about this unshakable foundation that we have, he said, the church is not saved by a creed, but by a Christ. We are saved by Jesus. And so then he simply asks us, who do you say that I am? Will you follow me? And will you be part of the church? I don't know if there's one of those questions that maybe is kind of hitting home today and maybe you're wrestling or maybe you're like, okay, God, I'm not fighting anymore. I'm wanting to follow after you in this way. I'll tell you that our prayer room is open and we have people that would love to come alongside of you. And especially if you're like, hey, I want to make this decision to follow Jesus. What does that look like? Then I'd encourage you to go over there. We'd love to pray alongside of you as we continue to follow Jesus. Yes, as individuals, but then one as a community of believers. So let me pray and then we'll keep going. Jesus, thank you for coming and dying for us. I'm thankful for even those moments that we mess up or just you're like, what in the world? God, your love for us does not change and you continue to teach us. And God, your spirit that when we make that confession comes inside of us and you continue to mold us into Christ-like beings. God, we wear your righteousness and so I'm thankful for that. God, this week as we live, God, help us to follow. God, help us to live in community with one another. And Father, ultimately, as we do that, I pray that people would look at our lives and they would glorify you. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.